let me warn you right up front, my goal is to change the way you think about leadership. I do not aim merely to add one more voice to the conversation. I want to fundamentally change the way leadership is understood and practiced. For the better part of the last three decades, leadership has been a major cultural preoccupation and a professional obsession. Walk into an airport bookstore and you'll find the front tables filled with books promising to make you a better leader. Apparently frequent travelers have a healthy appetite for such advice. Walk into a Christian bookstore and you'll find ample evidence of the same hunger. If you are like me, you probably have read a small library of books on leadership, have attended numerous conferences and seminars, and keep up with leadership newsletters and professional journals when you find the time. Hotel conference rooms overflow with people listening to speakers deliver talks on leadership, and colleges and universities have gotten into the business as well, offering majors, degree programs, and even entire schools devoted to leadership studies. And yet, something is missing. I was born in 1959, right at the center of the golden age of American management. The managerial revolution was in full swing, and America's corporate leaders were managers of the first rank. But no one really thought of them as leaders. President John F. Kennedy took office in 1961, assembling a cabinet of youthful and technocratic managerial experts, largely drawn from America's leading corporations. Writer David Halberstam would later call these men the best and the brightest. Lyndon Johnson, Kennedy's vice president, was considerably impressed by Kennedy's collection of managerial expertise. When he gushed about them to former Speaker of the House Sam Rayburn, the Speaker retorted, Well, Lyndon, you may be right, and they may be every bit as bright and intelligent as you say, but I'd feel a whole lot better about them if just one of them had run for sheriff once. We get his point. Those managers were among the brightest of their generation, but they managed the nation right into the disasters of the 1960s, such as the Bay of Pigs and Vietnam. Evidently, management is not the same thing as leadership. As a teenager, I was already looking for examples of leadership. I read about Winston Churchill, and I recognized that he was no mere manager. He was a leader of world-changing courage. When he spoke, a nation was given the hope and determination to fight a war that simply had to be won, against odds that left even many of his own friends and family convinced that England's future was already lost. I cut my political teeth working as a high school volunteer in Ronald Reagan's campaign for the Republican presidential nomination in 1976. Early that summer, no one had to ask me twice to be part of the line welcoming Governor and Mrs. Reagan into War Memorial Auditorium in Fort Lauderdale for a major speech. I got to shake Reagan's hand and then hear him speak. He did not talk about vague policy goals or speak in political bromides. He spoke with passion about ideas and the possibility of changing the way Washington was run. I recognized that he was a leader and that his leadership was transformational. I knew he believed what he was saying, and I could see that he persuaded others to believe with him. Reagan did not win the nomination in 1976, but he went on to carry 49 states in the 1980 presidential election. By that time, regardless of partisan identification, Americans were learning again to look for a leader. In college, I studied political science before ending up as a religion and philosophy major. 
If my exposure to political science was any indication, those professors cared very little about leadership. Every class seemed like a statistics assignment. In seminary, I had to take classes that were then called church administration. Trust me on this. The classes had little to do with the church and a lot to do with administration, but nothing to do with leadership. I had to create my own leadership studies program. You'll probably discover, or you may already know, that the same is true for you. I read historical biographies, observed the national and international scene, and began to read the emerging literature on political and business leadership. I took every opportunity to watch leaders up close, spending time with as many of them as I could. The Leadership Renaissance Fast forward a few years to when I was editor of one of the oldest Christian newspapers in the nation. I received a call inviting me to join a small group of Christian leaders for a meeting on national drug policy at the White House. President George H. W. Bush was launching a major new initiative intended to stem the drug problem. The other leaders and I flew up together to Washington, and on the plane I noted that almost all of the pastors were talking about someone I had never heard of before. A California pastor named John Maxwell was recording sessions in which he was training his own staff in leadership. Pastors were buying his tapes and passing them around like the old Soviet dissidents used to exchange samizdat, forbidden political literature. Before long, John Maxwell was teaching leadership all over the country, and his books were showing up in airport bookstores. By the 1990s, leaders were flocking to Willow Creek Community Church in suburban Chicago, where Pastor Bill Hybels had started his series of huge leadership conferences. I attended one of the earliest. By the end of the decade, it was hard to even get a seat in Chicago, and most people would have to settle for a regional site elsewhere. What was going on? The hunger for leadership had reached every sector of our society, including business, government, education, cultural institutions, and, of course, the church. Christians, along with everyone else, wanted to develop leadership.